0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roanert Park area.
1: And our study today, if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, brings us to the treacherous plans of betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ and the beginning of the most infamous deed that's ever been recorded in history. And it makes the person who committed this deed the most despicable person that's ever lived. You know his name. There's scarcely a person in all the civilized world that doesn't know the name of Judas Iscariot. One of the things that we often... Mention when we speak on this subject is how that nobody ever gives a child the name of Judas. Now Judas was one of the Lord's 12 chosen apostles and the names of all the others are given frequently to children. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip. uh, Those are often given names but nobody ever gives a child the name Judas. And that's because the name is never separated from the infamous the infamous deed that he did. So if you ever call somebody a Judas, what you've done is you've just assigned to them this despicable act that he committed. Now, one of the things that we would never do is to make excuses for Judas. But I will say this, that everything that Judas did worked into the sovereign plan of God. Back in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Uh, the Lord would be betrayed and that the betrayal would come at the hands of one who is a confidant, a trusted friend. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 41 verse 9, yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted which should eat of my bread hath lifted up his heel against me. Now today I want to discuss with you the plan of Judas to betray the Lord and then also what Jesus was doing while that plan was playing out. And I would hope that by the end of the sermon that none of us would want to be anything at all like Judas. Now, if you stand with me, please, and look at Matthew 26 and verse number 14, Matthew 26:14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest and said unto them, "What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you?" And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples." And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us as we look into this today, a subject that, at least most of this, that we just really don't like to talk about, yet it is in your word, it needs to be told, and there's a lesson for us to learn. So Lord, help us as we look into scripture today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, as I said, there are some subjects that you don't really want to talk about, and that's it's really a big difference between what we had to talk about this past Sunday morning and what we want to speak about today. In the last message, we looked at a beautiful act of worship that was performed by Mary of Bethany when she took a costly vial of perfume and she poured it out on Jesus. Mary gave Jesus... Everything that she had in her devotion to them, she gave him, she gave it her most costly possession. Without hesitation, she poured all of that precious ointment out on him. And the Bible says the perfume ran over his body. It even reached down to his feet. And in other places of Scripture, we find that what Mary did next was to bow and to wash the feet of Jesus with her hair. And we looked at the timing of that act of worship, and I remarked to you that In the book of Matthew, we find that Matthew takes us back in time. Uh, He left the chronological order of this narrative and he backed up six days prior to the Passover before Jesus actually came into Jerusalem. And the reason that he did that was to connect that wonderful act of worship that Mary did to this despicable act of betrayal of Judas that we find in this text. Now, you remember as we studied last week that Judas protested what Mary did. And to be fair about that, so did all the rest of the disciples. But it was Judas who was the one who began from that moment to to seek a way that he would betray the Lord. Now, as we come to the text that we read this morning, Matthew puts us back into the chronology, the right chronology, and we're back in Jerusalem on the right timetable two days before Christ's death. And the reason that we know that is because going back to verse number 3 and 4, the chief priests and the elders were still plotting. They didn't know yet how that they were going to take Jesus. And then by what seems to be a tremendous stroke of luck, one of his own disciples showed up on their doorstep offering to hand them Jesus for just a paltry sum of money. And so we know that Judas must have come at that particular time, the same time as verses 3 and 4. That's two days before the cross. Now, I'd like us to look at Judas first today, and I want to speak of his disloyalty. And the disloyalty is never seen more clearly than we put it up, when we put it up next to this act of worship that was performed by Mary. Her loyalty was famous, it was supremely genuine, she sat at the feet of Jesus and she learned from Him. And that caused her to love Him so much that there was nothing that was too valuable for her to give to Him. Nothing more valuable than Him. And that caused her to, to take this vial of perfume the amount that was worth the amount that you or I would, would earn in a year's time and to pour it all out on Jesus right down to the very last drop expending it all on Him. But on the other hand, we have Judas. He also heard the teachings of Jesus. He was witness to the many miracles. He was a constant companion for three years of Jesus. And yet, it was never noticed by anyone that this kind of evil could lurk in the heart of this man. We go back to Matthew chapter 10, where we have the story of the choosing of these 12 disciples. And... We notice there in that that Jesus made no mention at all how that Judas might be different from the rest. We never even see the difference in Matthew uh, until Matthew waits until after the death and resurrection of Christ to record that 10th chapter, and he was able to identify Judas as the betrayer. Now, by then, of course, Matthew knew what Judas would do, and there's just a simple description there in Matthew chapter 10 where he lists the names of the apostles as they were chosen. He comes to the 11th one. He says, Simon the Canaanite, and then without any explanation, without any fanfare, he just simply says, he's able to say, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, despite the subsequent ignominy of the name of Judas, there really isn't anything wrong with his name. There's nothing in his name that would indicate his dastardly character. The name Judas means Jehovah leads, or some say praise Jehovah. So you don't see anything there that would indicate anything about what kind of person that he would be. And then the second part of his name is Scariot. That doesn't give us a clue either. All that refers to is his birthplace. It's, it's, uh, it's scary uh it's just a form of the word Kirioth, which is the town where Judas was born, a town next to Hebron in Judea. Now the only thing then that stands out about Judas in relation to the other disciples is that he was the only disciple that was not a Galilean. He was a Judean. And that might have made him a little bit different, uh, you know, a little bit different in his speech. The Galileans talked a little bit differently than, had a uh, little different accent than those that were in Judea. And maybe you might think, well, there could have been a little bit distrust because he's not exactly like the others. But we, we read the story and we find out that three years traveling with Jesus, he was an accepted member of the group. No one thought that there was anything wrong with Judas at all. And the disciples never found out about this until the time that he actually betrayed the Lord. He was a very different person, very different in his heart, and yet no one knew that, a very different man. He was the disloyal one. Here is the one who had never been changed by the saving grace of God that in three years of walking with Jesus, he made no improvements upon that very first day when he met Jesus Christ. But he was definitely a very different man. And I think it's well worth noting for us that this is often the case in churches. That there are many people who sit in churches and they they sing the same songs that we sing. And they listen to the same messages that we preach. They pray with us. They sit next to the people of God. But they're not really like us. They're not really Christians. They're good pretenders. And the problem is we can't see what's in their heart. They never come to Jesus even though they are so very near to him. And then it's also worth noting that some who are Christians are not too much unlike Judas. They also betray the Lord. And I think about that often in my own life. When I willfully choose to sin and I do that fully knowing that it's not what Christ would do then I have also betrayed Jesus. And what he did was to give his life to conquer sin in me. And so when I sin against him, I betray that precious blood uh, if, if I purposely do things that I know that he died to save me from. Now, thankfully, with a person who knows the Lord, that's not a place where you stay your life actually becomes a, day, a life of daily repentance because you realize there is no perfection in you except for Jesus Christ. And as you live your life day after day, you get encumbered with all the cares of the world and you get weighed down by those and you enter into sin. But if you are a child of God, you can't stay there. You, you, you repent of those sins and you come back to the Lord. But there are many people that, Christians, who say they're Christians at least, they're in the church and they hear the sermons that are preached and there is no conviction of sin in their life. Rather, they can go on day by day living in the same sins, never being convicted of that, never letting the Word of God settle down into their minds and cause them to turn to the Lord and do His will, to be obedient to Him. Now, what we must do is when the Word of God is preached and our sin is identified, not to be angry about that, but to let that Word affect us and change us and become obedient servants of Christ. Now, if you're not that way, then how much are you unlike Judas? You betrayed the Lord. And what does that say about you? If you live that way, what does it say about you that makes you better than Judas? Judas. I would suspect that if people knew our secret sins, that they probably wouldn't name people after us. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, about Judas, his greed. Now, looking back again at last week's message, Judas was indignant about Mary's gift. It was he that first made the suggestion that this offering was waste and it should have been given to the poor. Now, when reading John's account of the story... He names Judas and provides the motivation for his protest against Mary. Let me read that to you from John chapter 12. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And then comes his motivation. This, he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and held the bag and bear what was put therein. Now there it indicates that before this particular incident, before the thing with Mary and the problem that he has there, that he'd already stolen and misappropriated the disciples' funds for his own purposes. And I might just add to that, since we're, since we're really trying to draw out some teaching points here, how much Unlike Judas, are you when you steal out of the Lord's treasury his tithes and his offerings? How much are you unlike Judas when you take God's money and you use it for yourself? Doesn't Malachi address this very issue? In Malachi chapter 3 verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. So are you so different from Judas when you steal what belongs to God? Now, if you're a Christian, you should be very uncomfortable about right now if you still have God's money in your pocket or in your bank account. But going on, Judas was involved, already involved in nefarious activity. And it might have been this incident with Mary that actually pushed him over the edge. He wanted to get his hands on the money, on on that alabaster box, and when he didn't get that, then he began to find a way, seek a way to get what he wanted. And here's a warning to us also, that when you begin to walk in a path of stealing from God, there's no limit to what you'll do. So Judas devised a plan to get what he wanted and so he went to the chief priest to give them what they wanted and what they wanted was to get rid of Jesus and they were willing to pay for it. Now what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is to just explore a little bit of Judah's thought processes, why that he did what he did. Uh, We can't really understand all of the motivations here but don't know them all. But being driven by money, I think that we can certainly... Imagine how all this would play out. Judas was not a dedicated disciple. He was not a loyal disciple. And when Jesus then started talking about going to the cross, and he said things like, take up your cross, then Judas must have thought, well, that's, that's what's going to happen to all of us. That's what's going to happen to everybody who is loyal to Jesus. They're going to end up on a cross just like him. And that was a total possibility. It was even a likely possibility that that would happen. And Judas was not about to be a martyr. There there was no nobility, no noble blood that was flowing in his veins. And likewise, we find this to be true, that in lukewarm Christianity, when the going gets tough, and when it appears that there is no way out, when it's going to cost us something, when 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 it's going to be something that that we don't want to give up for Christ, we're going to end up betraying Him. And and if you're not going to serve Him by giving Him your time and your money, it's certain that you're not going to serve Him by giving your life. But I would remind you of people that do that martyrs for the faith hundreds and thousands and millions even of christians down through the centuries who gave their lives uh, for jesus christ knowing that if they if they if they turned against him or, or if they didn't turn against him that lives would be taken from them yet they still stood for christ in revelation chapter 12 it talks about the tribulation saints who will face the worst of times and There it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. That's speaking of Satan, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him with the blood of the Lamb by the word of the testimony. And listen, they loved not their lives unto the death. And there we find the hallmark of a true Christian Christ gave his all. He didn't love physical life so much that he wouldn't surrender it, but he gave it all for our salvation. And true believers never regard their life as being so precious that they will not forfeit it for the eternal. But Judas was not in that group. And so he said, if he's going to die, the same will happen to all of us. Secondly, Judas saw that the end was near. Now, the hatred of the Jewish leaders had reached the point that they couldn't stand Jesus any longer. And so they determined that they would move against him. And Judas must have been frantic about that because he wasn't stupid. I mean, he he had fooled the rest of the disciples for a long, long time. And he was smart enough to know when he should make his move. And then thirdly, Judas must have thought... I have wasted three years following Jesus. There is no kingdom. And that's what they were all looking for. But Judas was looking for the reward of the kingdom most of all. And when he followed Christ for three years and saw that there was no kingdom, he was very distraught about that. And he knew that Jesus had the power to bring the kingdom... That was never displayed more graphically than when Jesus spoke to the sea, when he spoke to the winds and the waves and he stilled all of that. Judas knew that he had the power to do this, but apparently he wasn't going to use it. And so Judas thought, I don't have anything to show for my time. I don't have anything but poverty and hatred. And so now is the time to get out of this. And how many Christian betrayers find themselves in that place? When you professed Christ, did you expect that all of your problems would be solved? Did you expect that your ship would come in? Or did you find out, as Bob says, his ship came in and he was at the airport? Maybe that's the way it was for you. Did you think that your life wouldn't be a country music song? That your wife would leave you and your dog would leave you and your friends would have nothing to do with you? Did you think that when you became a Christian that all of these problems would be solved and the only trouble that you'd ever have is trying to count all the money that you have in your bank account? Christianity has no promises of a big bank account. Christianity has no promises that your family will not reject you. You may very well find yourself alone, but of course not really alone because you have Christ and that's best of all. And you also have other Christians who believe just like you. But if you're not willing to sell out for Jesus, then you may very well sell him out. And perhaps you'll say, what have I to show for it? I've spent all this time in church, I've given all this time and given all this money, if you have, and you say, what have I got to show for it? And if you can't see heavenly things through the eyes of faith, then this is exactly what you will do. You'll turn against Christ and you go back to the old ways. And we see that all of the time. What looks to us like a, a good confession of faith, that a person is really sincere about the confession that they've made of Christ, they may go down into the waters of the baptistry and they may stay with us for a while, but it's not long before the cares of the world, when all the problems that come, they, the word is choked out and they quickly lose that profession, they fizzle and they fade away. Just like Jesus described in the parable of the sower. There are many people that approach Christianity in that way and if they don't get the good things immediately that they think they should receive, then they turn against Christ. And so we have Judas. We have a man who was a professor but not a possessor of eternal life. And then, fourthly, Judas may have been thinking that the time is right. The chief priests are going to kill Jesus anyway. Sometime they're going to kill him. So why shouldn't he profit from it rather than suffer because of it? So if there was anything to be gained from this venture with Jesus, then now is the time to move before Jesus goes to the cross. And so he did that. He presented an offer to the chief priests and they agreed upon the sum. And that was a very paltry sum It was nowhere near what he expected, I don't think. Certainly not near at all to what Mary's alabaster box was worth. In Exodus chapter 21, verse number 32, it says, If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. The price that was agreed upon for the betrayal was the value of, placed upon Jesus, which is the price of a slave. He was worth what Judas thought that he was worth, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, and Jesus was sold out for the value of that common slave. I I don't think that his greed shined any brighter than when the final price that was paid was actually peanuts. And that's what you accept when you decide that you're going to Betray Christ with tithes and offerings. You sell out for peanuts when Christ has promised that there would be eternal riches in the rewards of heaven. You, you could have had the abundance of the storehouses of heaven, but you want it now. And you want it for the price of slavery to the world. I was reading an article in USA Today just a, a few weeks ago. And there was a story about Bill Gates, who's the richest man in the world... And he said that his children would not benefit from his fortune. He said, my children will have to work for everything that they get. They're going to have to make their own living. Warren Buffett said the same. And that might be commendable in one way. I mean, that's probably a real teaching moment for their children. But as intriguing as that decision is, I can tell you that God doesn't think that way. Everything that God has is for the benefit of His children. There's nothing that's withheld from them, and they don't have to work a second of any day in order to get it. He gives the inheritance as a free gift to us, and the costliness of that gift is not paid by us. It's paid by the precious blood of God's own Son, who went to Calvary to die for us. So it was God who pays all the expense of this inheritance, and we get everything that God owns And we have Christians in church that would trade all of that to keep 10% of what they own. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, 30 pieces of silver, that's the agreed upon price. And what did Judas trade for that? He traded gates of pearl, streets of gold. He traded eternal life in the city of God. The price of a slave to gain infamy and death in the fires of hell. That's not a trade that I think I want to make. Now, let's, let's take a moment to think about the irony of these two sections of Scripture. Loyalty versus disloyalty has an ironic twist to it. Look, look at verse number 13. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her now mary is forever remembered for this act of supreme worship of pouring out that vial of ointment wherever the gospel is preached jesus said that this story is going to be told and that mary's name will be remembered now slide that thought down to verse number 16 and from that time he that is judas he sought opportunity To betray him. And couldn't we just read right after that? Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this man hath done, be told as a memorial for him. And isn't that ironic? Wherever the gospel is preached, Judas is also remembered. And what is he remembered for? He's remembered to be the absolute worst of all humanity. And what makes him that way? Well, he is that way because he did the worst to the absolute best of humanity. And that's how you value the dastardliness of the deed. It's by the value against the one one it's committed against. Hitler killed men and women. Stalin killed his own people. But Judas killed the God-man. He killed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he lives on, no doubt. But his name is synonymous with the very worst that people can do. And then there's also this irony. Judas asked that Mary's money might be given to help the poor. Now, he didn't get that false wish, but he did get to help the poor. He was paid 30 pieces of silver, and do you remember what he did with that? He returned to the chief priests and the elders, and he threw those 30 pieces of silver at their feet. And do you know what they did? Well, they wouldn't put it back into the treasury because it was blood money. They're holy men, aren't they? So they're not going to do that. They wouldn't touch it. And so what they did was they bought a field to bury the poor. And so the poor got Judas money. What an ironic twist. Now, secondly, after the greed, there's also his guilt. You can't do these kinds of things and get away with them. Judas started a process of betrayal. He wasn't induced to do this. The chief priests had no settled plan for how they were going to get their hands on Jesus. And, and Judas just showed up at their door and he said, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. Now, here, here's something that you might note in your Bible. That the Greek text there, in the, the, the I there, is emphatic. He says, I will do this. Now later, Judas couldn't claim, oh, the devil made me do that. No, he said, I will do this. And neither are you going to appear before the Lord and sheepishly say, the devil made me do it. You're not going to go into judgment and you'll say, well, excuse me, I shouldn't be here because I, I had a bad childhood. Excuse me, but... I I, I lived in a bad environment. Excuse me, but I didn't have all of the economic opportunities that other people have had. No, folks, when you stand before God, your sin is your own. It's no one else's. There aren't any excuses. And when God pulls out the list of sins, he'll say, who did this? And you will say emphatically, I did it. And so you're going to bear the penalty of the sin because the guilt is yours so, the guilt was on judas, and, and he couldn 't stand it anymore and so, in an act of remorse, not in an, an act of evangelical repentance, but in an act of bad conscience, he took the money back and matthew twenty seven five and also acts one eighteen tells us what happened to him. He hanged himself there was no there was no pardon, and there was no profit. He never went back to the Lord and repented. And put his faith in Jesus. He just went out and hanged himself in an overwhelming moment of grief and remorse. And there's another lesson that we can learn here, that conscience may affect you. You may feel bad about some of the things that you've done, but unless you come to Jesus and you're broken over your sin, and you confess that your sins are against a holy God, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ to deliver you from those sins, unless you come in that way, you'll die in reformation and not in repentance. And there is a difference between reformation and repentance. And you better be sure that you understand the difference. Judas was guilty and he never got rid of the guilt. I'm going to look at a very interesting verse and the implications of it at a later time. But just take a look at verse number 24 for a moment. There it says, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, there are huge implications in that verse. I'm anxious to talk about that, but we're going to save it for a later time. Now, we, we see Judah's plan. He was disloyal. His plan worked. And so you might think that Jesus would be busy trying to foil the plan. But he wasn't. Jesus had other things on his mind. Now, let's conclude today with the second point, and that is the determination of Jesus. Jesus was determined to do what he would do. Verse 17, now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Now, Passover was approaching. That's the time of his death. And Jesus was not worried about what Judas was doing. What Judas did was his own to do. And yet everything that he did worked into the sovereign plan of God. Now the chief priests said, this is not going to happen at the Passover. You remember that? They said, this is not going to happen then. Jesus said, oh yes, it will happen then. And so Judas showed up at their door, at the door of the chief priests and the elders. And an Arminian might say, oh, what dumb luck. But it was God's sovereignty. The chief priests were given a Don Corleone offer that they couldn't refuse. And how much better could this get for them? Because who would have imagined, who would have expected that that one of this tight-knit group of disciples should suddenly break away and show up at their door and offer up Jesus on a silver platter? And despite the objections of the timing of it, they chose Passover to kill him over their own prudence. So Jesus knew what Judas would do. He was the only one that did know what Judas would do. And it figured in into how he would take care of these other things. How was he going to celebrate Passover? He must do that. He must give us the institution of this beautiful picture of the Lord's Supper which we memorialize, in which we memorialize the death of Christ. Now, let's notice quickly and we're done. First of all, it's it's at the feast. The feast. The text says it is the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. Now that takes us back into the Old Testament and many different days of religious celebration. And the Jews had, had many of those, just like we do in Christianity. They had their holidays or holy days. In Christianity, we have Christmas and Easter. Some have other days on their religious calendar. The Jews had many of these and one of them, or two of them we might say, is Passover and the, feast of, of the, of the uh, a feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Jews had many of those. And this particular feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called, uh, just mentioned, the Feast of Tabernacles and also the Feast of Booths, was to celebrate Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Now, during that time, if they were in the wilderness, they had no permanent dwelling places. They lived in tents. That's what the word tabernacle means. It means a tent. So they were living in tents that they moved from place to place. And Israel lived in those tents for 40 years. And they wandered in the wilderness until they came to the promised land. Now, how did they get into the wilderness? Well, first of all, Pharaoh had to let them go. God sent plagues on Egypt. And finally, with the tenth plague, Pharaoh let Israel go. The tenth plague, as you know, was the death of the firstborn. And so on the last night before Israel's departure, God sent a death angel to kill all of the firstborn in Egypt. The firstborn above men and animals. And so there was this horrible death cry that went up on that night as Egypt lost all of its firstborn children. But God made a provision that if a family would kill a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the door of the house and then go into the house under the safety of that blood, then the death angel would see the blood and he would pass over that house. Thus we have the name Passover. Well, Passover is the beginning of the Feast of Weeks. Passover is what got them into the into the wilderness. So Passover's first, then comes the Feast of the Weeks, The Feast of Weeks to celebrate what happened in in the wilderness. Now the whole time period of that, it's an eight-day feast now, the whole time period collectively became known as Passover. Now just briefly before going on here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was unleavened bread because Israel was such a, in such a hurry to leave Egypt. What they couldn't do was let yeast rise in their bread and so they were told to leave the yeast out or as they would say leave the leaven out and bake your bread and they made unleavened bread then and that's why one of the reasons why we have unleavened bread in the lord's supper so the time is there for passover and since jesus is the antitype of the passover lamb he must be crucified at the time of passover now at this point i do need to remind you that jerusalem was filled to about ten times its population because of this celebration. Passover could not be celebrated at any place but but Jerusalem and at the temple. And so Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem at this time for Passover. Nobody celebrated Passover in Galilee. They didn't celebrate it in the Negev. They had to come to Jerusalem. Now that brings me to this final point, and that is the foresight in Jesus' determination. Now, now, Jesus took care of his business. Judas took care of his. And while all this is going on, Jerusalem fills up with people so that there is no place to celebrate Passover. All available rooms have been taken. Passover had to be eaten indoors. So you couldn't go to Jerusalem and take it in the street. And you couldn't go take it in a city park. You had to go inside. You had to be in a house. You had to be in a dwelling And so if visitors to Jerusalem had not secured a place beforehand when we got there, then they would be left out of the celebration. Well, Jesus knows all of this, and so he has the foresight to take care of that, but not in an ordinary way. Now, we always expect the extraordinary from Jesus, don't we? And so we notice the wisdom and the foresight of the way that he did this, and we see it very clearly, even more clearly, in the book of Luke. There it tells us that... Jesus sent two disciples to secure the spot and Luke tells us who those two disciples were. They were Peter and John. Now there are actually two outstanding acts of foresight. The first is that he sent two disciples and he didn't send all of them. And the second is that he didn't give the name or the address of the man that they were supposed to see. He said, go look for such a man. And that's like saying... Go look for so-and-so. No name, no address, no directions to the house. Just go find so-and-so. Well, okay, we'll try that. Jerusalem is filled with ten times the population. The streets are crowded. They're packed with all kinds of people. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, you ought to go. Go to the old city and you see how busy things are there, how many people are there. If you go around Easter time, the place is packed. Just filled up all the streets. And you can hardly move through there. But nevertheless, Jesus said to them, Go find so-and-so. Now, why did he do that? Well, it was wisdom. What was was Judas going to do? Well, Judas was going to betray him. And if he had the setting for the Passover, if he knew the place where it was, how easy would it have been for him to give that location to the chief priests, and all they need to do is just walk in and arrest Jesus. That can't happen though because Jesus must celebrate the Passover first. He, He has to do this. So he sent two disciples, not all of them. Peter and John went, but they didn't come back. Jesus didn't give him the man's name. He didn't give them the address. He said, go find so-and-so, and and he'll take you to the place for us to eat the Passover. So Jesus kept that information from Judas. Judas would have used it. Jesus knew it. And so in his great wisdom, he kept the plan on track. And when the time came for them to go, Jesus just took the other ten, took ten disciples with him, and they just followed them to the place, not knowing where they were going. Now, notice how they were to recognize this man. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. And you can also read about it in Mark 14. Luke is the one who gives us the names of Peter and John. And he tells us a little bit more about how all of this took place. In Luke 22 and in verse number 7. Luke 22 verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber? where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There, make ready. And they went and found, as he said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. So Jesus said, go into the city and you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Wonderful information. That's super, isn't it? Find a man carrying a pitcher of water in hot, dry Jerusalem, how many thousands of men are going to be carrying a pitcher of water? Actually, only one. Because men didn't carry pitchers of water. That was women's work, as it should be. So <laughs> men, men didn't carry the water because that would be like a man washing dishes or doing laundry. And all of us know that's women's work. And so he wouldn't do that. So so for a man to do this would be like putting a big L on his forehead and saying, I'm a loser, I am a wimp. And he wasn't... No, men just wouldn't do that. So this is the only guy that they're going to find in Jerusalem carrying a pitcher of water. Men are going to do that in public. Not in that kind of society when everybody knew what the Pharisees and all the other people thought about the role of women and men. He wasn't about the... A a normal man is not going to stand out among all these people in Jerusalem, and do women's work. He's not going to do it. But this man defied all societal norms and carried a pitcher of water. And the disciples saw him, and they followed him, and they did just what Jesus said, because he wasn't going to leave one detail unfulfilled. He must celebrate passover he must give us the picture of the lord's supper he must memorialize his own death now that's where we're going to end the story today what you need to be aware of is is the intent how intent that jesus was to give his life as a sacrifice for sin there were a hundred ways that he could have avoided this a hundred ways maybe in a thousand ways it all could have gone wrongly It all could have been messed up, but Jesus made sure that it didn't because he was intent to go to the cross. He went to the cross voluntarily and gave his life for us. So how do you respond to that kind of love? Do you respond to that by disloyalty? Do you evaluate the love and the sacrifice of Christ as being practically worthless? Never think that you're going to escape that any more than Judas did. Did you know the Bible calls him the son of perdition, which is the same name the Bible gives to the Antichrist? You can compare John seventeen twelve to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, where you'll see that. So is that where you are? Are you Antichrist? If you turn your back on him and you betray him, you are. You are Antichrist. And I don't need to tell you the results of that bad decision. So you make sure you do this. Make sure you make the right choice. Trust him and obey him. Be loyal to him. And then you'll enjoy the riches that he's promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story. Difficult to tell because of the treacherous acts of Judas. And we don't really want to lift him up in any way and give him more fame than he deserves. The Lord, we do want to see Jesus Christ in this and what he did to make sure that everything came about in exactly the way that it should so that he would be on the cross at the time of Passover, that he would give his life, that there was no desire to avoid it, but he loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. I pray that you'd open up some sinner's eyes to that great truth today i pray that you would remind us as christians of how true that it is why would we ever be disloyal to him when he proves so much loyalty to us lord help us to see you as the one who's always faithful to us and may we be faithful to you bless as we sing today and speak to our hearts through your holy spirit in jesus name we pray amen
0: dot